good morning. Uh, let's continue worshiping God uh, by looking to His Word. So this morning we'll be reading out of 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 12. Oh, sorry. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Like you mentioned, I haven't been sleeping well, so I might be a little off this morning. Um, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of this dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. A question I want us to think about this morning, and really for the next month or so as we take a short break from our Matthew series uh, and consider the year ahead and what it means uh, for us as Westgate, the uh, question is, what difference, what is the difference between going to church and being the church? What is the difference between going to church and being the church? If we listen to the way that we often speak of the church today, we speak of it predominantly as something that we go to. Did you go to church this week? Kids, you need to go to bed. We're going to church tomorrow morning, and so on. We speak of it as a place, as a building, as an event. Now, uh, of course, most of us will readily admit that the church is not the building. It is instead the, the people. We know the right answer there, but our everyday language betrays us. And it's more than mere semantics. Speaking of the church predominantly as something we go to reveals that for many of us, our idea of church is a somewhat isolated and static reality. We go to church to, to worship God or 
to fellowship with his people, to learn in our, and grow in our faith, which are all good things, but they're things that become associated with a certain place, a certain time, and certain events, which then often makes them disassociated with the rest of life. They become isolated, disconnected, marginalized. Fellowship, worship, holiness, those are good things, but those are church things. They may well be cherished things, but they're church things. It's something we go there and do or go there and receive. And it may or may not necessarily impact or interface with the rest of life. And after a while, it can become very easy to begin to think that, well, well, if those are church things, maybe it doesn't matter so much what I do or how I live Monday through Saturday, as long as I go to church on Sunday. Check in, do my God thing, you know, get my spiritual fix, and then back to, quote, real life. Our lives become compartmentalized. We have our church side and our non-church side. But if it doesn't really affect or impact most of what I spend my time doing and thinking about, then... After a while, I begin to ask the question, why do it? Why go? It's a question that recent generations have been asking a lot and have been having a very hard time finding good answers for. And it's not because we don't want the things the church is supposed to provide. Real community, meaningful purpose, genuine faith. I mean, spirituality is not on the decline in our culture. It's actually on the rise, but just not often associated with church anymore. We, we long for real community, for real faith, real worship, and real mission, but it's become harder and harder for many, including Christians, to find those things at church, at this thing that we go to, this event, this place. But... It also means that for those who value the church, if church is something we go to, we we tend to hang everything we possibly can on that Sunday morning event. So it's like having multiple hooks on the wall just inside your door, but hanging every coat, every bag, every briefcase, every diaper bag and backpack all on a single hook. You know, if everything, if we take everything that we long for in relationship with God and everything we feel called to do on behalf of God and we hang it all on this one time in this one place, this one event we call going to church, we're not only going to set ourselves up for disappointment when the peg breaks, we also find ourselves getting very territorial over that hook. You know, if my opportunity to meet with God personally is contingent on what happens during this Sunday morning service, then unless the music and the preaching style is exactly what moves my heart, you are depriving of me of, me, of my chance to meet with God. And I will fight you over that. But if reaching people for Christ means getting them to church, 
Well, then our greatest need is to make this the kind of place and event and service and programs that they want to come back to over and over again. Otherwise, you're undercutting the advance of the gospel. And we'll fight over that one, too. But you have to be careful. We, we cannot allow the culture to change the church instead of the church changing the culture. And so we must be deeply suspicious about any changes to the status quo. We must protect the hook. We hang everything on that one thing, and we end up fighting over the hook. That's not real church. That is not God's vision for church. It's not what the Bible says our experience of church should look and feel like. Real church is not what you go to. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's the people of God in whom Christ dwells in order to display his glory, his beauty. It's a family of missionary servants empowered by God's spirit to make disciples for Christ. Or to use the language of our vision statement, it's a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. And when we begin to see church as who we are, not just what we go to, we begin to see it as a much more integrated and dynamic and relational reality. It's not static and isolated, marginalized over here. It's not just the single hook, but it's something that encompasses the whole wall. And we don't neglect gathering together. We don't minimize what we do when we gather and when we come together. But neither are fellowship or discipleship or evangelism all contingent on getting people to a building. It's much more dynamic and integrated than that. And when we do gather for worship, it's not just about me connecting with God personally. It's about us connecting to God as one body, as a family, making much of him and building one another up in Christ. It's relational, not just vertically, but also horizontally. But whether we are gathered in one place like we are right now, or scattered throughout cities and neighborhoods, we are still the people of God in Christ. We are still the church, called to make much of God, to share life together as a family, to lay down our lives to make Christ known wherever we are. We need a better conception of church as we think about how to be faithful to what God's called us to. We need a biblical conception. And 1 Peter is going to help us see that over the next few weeks. And we'll see in our passage this morning that real church begins with real faith. With real faith. A God-centered, gospel-saturated, salvation-forming, biblically-shaped faith. Let's pray together and turn our attention to 1 Peter 1. Lord, it is your voice we want to hear right now. Not mine, not ours. We want to hear your voice, Lord, from your word. We want to see who are we, Lord, in Christ. Help us see that. And help us see what the implications for that are 
as a congregation as we move into the year ahead. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in each of our hearts, opening our ears, opening our eyes, changing our hearts to see you and to be transformed. Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we need convicted and that you would comfort us where we need comforted, that you would draw us to delight in your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me again. What does it mean to be the church instead of just going to it? Well, as Peter opens his letter and he begins to really answer that question for us, take a look at chapter 1 and notice how he doesn't just jump straight into giving instructions and commands on what we're supposed to do. In fact, he doesn't give a, uh, a command or an instruction until verse 13. He begins, rather, by celebrating what God has done, is doing, and will do to make us his redeemed people. This opening section of First Peter really is all about God and his work, our response to which in these verses is faith. He mentions faith or belief four times in these verses. So what does real faith look like? What kind of faith is God calling us to as his people? There are four marks of real faith in these verses. And the first one is that it is God-centered. It is God-centered faith. Everything that Peter says about the people of God in this book flows out of who our triune God is and what he is doing. And we see that right away in his opening greeting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter's writing to Christians who have been scattered and dispersed among several Roman colonies in the first century uh, in Asia Minor, most likely having been exiled out of Rome. But he addresses them here as elect exiles, chosen exiles, people rejected by the world but chosen by God to be his people. As verse 2 describes it, they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They didn't initiate the process of becoming God's people. God did. He knew them ahead of time. Not just what they would do, but he knew them to be his people from before the beginning of time. And he worked out his salvation program in order to rescue them. God is the author of salvation. Second, he chose them in the sanctification, or another way to to put that, by the consecrating work of the Spirit. So the Father's at work, the Spirit's also at work, setting us apart for God, consecrating us, setting us apart for God according to his plan, applying the saving work of God to our lives. 
And then third, we're chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So we see the Father, then we see the Spirit, now we see the Son at work. And the picture of sprinkling with blood is what the priests did to the altar when they ratified the covenant in the Old Testament, making Israel God's covenant community. God chose his church that they might be his new covenant people, redeemed and consecrated by the blood of Christ. Not by the blood of of a goat or a lamb, but by the precious blood of Christ, set apart for obedient service to him. So the church, right from the greeting here, we see that the church exists by God and for God. We didn't come up with this idea. God did. And we see the centrality of God as we continue in verse 3. Again, rather than jumping right into instructions about what we do, Peter starts with a song in verse 3, a hymn of praise to God for what he has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be be revealed in the last time. The church exists by God and for God. It's not a human invention or institution. It was birthed from God's word. Not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, as he puts it in 123. So the church is God's thing. He made it. Our response is faith. A God-centered faith, a faith that recognizes God's authority, God's worthiness, God's name, that, that exalts his name and that serves his purposes and his glory. It's a God-centered faith. Now, of course, the, the temptation that all of us face daily is to make faith and the church about us instead of about God, uh, to nurture a man-centered faith instead of a God-centered one, to, to turn to, to trust God basically because of what I hope he's going to give me or what I'm going to get out of the deal, and not so much because he's God, because I love him, because I want to honor him. Even to, to turn going to church as a way of, of, of you know, going there because of what I get out of it rather than what God gets out of us gathering together to worship him. That kind of man-centered view of faith or of church is as old as the fall back in the garden in Genesis when we decided that we would do a much better job running the world than God. But it's quite comfortable in our consumer and and therapy-driven culture today where everything has become about me. As David Wells describes, we have come to think of God as a cheerleader who only wants our success. He's a booster, an inspiring coach, a source of endless prosperity for us. He would never interfere with us in our pursuit of the good life, by which we mean the pursuit of good things in life. We see him as a never-ending fountain of these blessings. He is our concierge. End quote. 
As one pastor from a, a relatively influential church recently tweeted, Get ready. Things are shifting in your favor. Don't talk yourself out of it. Believe that this is your year for acceleration. You've got to believe. In fact, if you don't have all of these things that you want, it's because you're not believing enough. God's just sitting there waiting for you to stretch out your hand and take them. If you, if you have you know, poverty or, or sickness or whatever, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's the message we're hearing in all sorts of corners. And it is deadly. It's deadly. We turn faith into a work, and then we make it a means of personal gain. And going to church becomes then not much more than, than another way we can try and manipulate God to give us what we really want in life. Here's a litmus test for how man-centered our faith may have become. Think about your prayer life. This is a painful test for me personally. How often do you pray? Just think about that for a second. When we fail to pray, it shows us who we're really trusting in, doesn't it? Not God, but me. As Jared Wilson has said, when we don't pray, we're basically saying, I got this. I can do this. Translation, I don't really need God for this. We forget that we have nothing apart from God. Here's another question. When you pray, what do you pray for? Is most of your prayer asking God to do things for you or to give things to you? You know, if you were to kind of think through what proportion of our prayer... Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to do things for you or give things to you or to lament to God over the things that are wrong in this world. There's nothing wrong with those things. But how much of your prayer life is about God and not just about you? How much is simply delighting in God because he's God? Or seeking his will, his plan, his forgiveness and grace? How do our prayers line up with some of the prayers we see in the Psalms or in Paul's epistles. Those are very God-centered prayers, which is a good reason of why we can learn to pray from those kinds of prayers. It's very easy, very subtle to slip into a man-centered version of faith, turning faith and church into what we get out of it rather than what God gets out of it. But real faith is not captivated with me. Or captivated with what the world can give me. It's captivated with God. With the bigness of God. With the holiness. The majesty. The glory. The mercy. And the love of God. A God who consumes all of life. Not just what we do a couple hours a morning. One day a week. Real faith is God-centered faith. And so the church must be a people enthralled with God. Second, real faith is gospel-saturated faith. It's gospel-saturated faith. A God-centered faith is necessarily a gospel-saturated faith because God's saving work has been accomplished through the death and resurrection 
of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we mean by the word gospel. It's the good news of what God has done to deal with our sin, to establish his kingdom through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son. And these verses in 1 Peter are dripping with that good news. Look again at verse 2 with me. In Paul, in Peter's introduction, he describes we've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Right there, out of the chute, the blood of Christ is held up as the foundation for who we are as God's covenant people. It's through his blood shed on the cross that God is forming us into his church. As, for, as Peter says later in verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then look at verse uh, verse 3 with me. So we see the cross right there in verse 2. We see the resurrection right here in verse 3. It's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that God causes us to be born again, to receive new life in Christ. We who were dead in our transgressions and sin, God has made us alive together with Christ. He's given us new birth. And we partake of that new life, not by works, but by faith. Real faith is gospel-saturated faith. Our default as humans is to approach our relationship with God, or frankly, our relationship with anybody, on the basis of performance, of how I'm going to perform for you in order to gain or, or maintain your acceptance. So we try to obey God so we'll be accepted by him. That's the way our sinful brains and hearts work. We go to church to look good for God and maybe gain his approval so that he will then give us his blessing. But again, this is not the gospel. That's not what real faith looks like. The gospel is not advice on how you can live in order to get in good with God. The gospel is news of what God has done to take unworthy sinners like us who deserve the full extent of his wrath for our sin and rebellion and and to send his son into this world to take our sin on himself to cleanse us of that sin to redeem us to adopt us into his family to make us his children not because of anything we've done but because of what christ has done to which we respond with faith with faith it's not performance it's a it's grace it's being given something absolutely incredible even though we deserve the the remotest opposite of it that's grace And it's through the blood of Christ. It's by grace that we're born again. It's by grace that we grow and walk with God in daily obedience, whether we're gathered here or whether we're scattered. As Tim Keller often says, we don't obey God in order to be accepted. We obey God because we have been accepted by grace. That makes an amazing difference, doesn't it? You go from being motivated by guilt and shame and fear to motivated by joy and love. Grace motivates us. It frees us from sin and it fuels our obedience. 
So here's another test. To what extent is my faith gospel-saturated versus performance-based? Think again of your prayer life. When you ask God for something or to do something for you, why do you think he should answer that prayer? What bargaining goes on in your heart, in your prayer life, when you really need something or want something from the Lord? Is it because you went to church this week? Is it, is it because you spent extra time in God's word or you helped a neighbor or, or, or you did something for him? If that's the bargaining power that we're leveraging in our prayers, that's a pretty good indication that we're operating and approaching God on the basis of performance instead of grace. Or maybe you don't think God should answer your prayers at all. Maybe, you know, because, you know, you haven't been doing a good job lately. You've been grouchy and barking at your kids. You've spent no time in the Word. You, you, you find yourself giving into temptation again and again. There's no reason why God should answer this prayer at all. Well, that too is, is approaching prayer and approaching faith on the basis of performance. I've blown it, God. I don't deserve a thing. Why should God answer our prayers? It's not because we're good enough, but because we're his children through faith in Christ. All the approval we need has already been given us through our union with Jesus. And whether that answer is yes or no or something we had never even imagined, we know that whatever it is, God is loving us as his children. He's doing all things for our good, and he's magnifying his glory. We can be confident in that. Real faith is gospel-saturated faith. Nothing happens in this passage that doesn't flow out of what God has done through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The church must be a people utterly dependent on grace and wonderfully obsessed with the gospel. Third, real faith is salvation-forming faith. It's salvation-forming in us. So if our faith is in God and in his gospel, then we will never be the same. That's the point here. Faith in God affects us. It's easy to say to somebody, yes, I have faith, I believe. But if that faith doesn't change our hearts, if it doesn't change our lives, if it doesn't make us more and more like Christ, then, then you have to ask, what is my faith in? You know, am I believing in myself? Am I believing in some generic version of a, of a spiritual being? Or am I believing in the God who sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue us? If you're believing in that God, faith will change you your life. It will affect you because it is a saving faith. We see salvation all over these verses. And this salvation is a past, present, and a future reality. We see that in our passage. Again, verse 3. We see that there's a very real sense in which God's people have already been saved. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have, if our faith is in Christ, we've already been 
born again to new life in him by the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in us. We've already been declared not guilty of our sins, justified by faith. There's a, there's a past tense to salvation for God's people. But there's also a future tense if we keep reading in verse 4. We've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a coming aspect of our salvation also. Though we've already been saved from the penalty of sin, we're not yet saved from sin's presence. We still fight and battle against it. We have not yet received the perfect inheritance from God that is being kept in heaven for us to to be God's people in God's place, enjoying his presence and blessing forever. That is not our current reality. We're waiting for that part of our salvation. We're waiting for our resurrection bodies after the image of Christ's resurrection body. There's so much that's yet to come. And our hope as a church is to be put in those things yet to come and not to look for it in this world. So there's a future aspect to our salvation. But there's also a present. Salvation is past, it's future, but it's also present, a present reality. We are currently being saved by faith. And that's what verses 6 through 9 talk about. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's a present tense of what God is doing. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us today. To be the church is to be a people in process. It's to be a people in process. We're not a perfect people. I know that may come as a surprise to some of you, but hang around us long enough, it'll be pretty clear. We are a people who are being saved, being changed to look more and more and to live more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that process of transformation or spiritual growth is one that's often marked by trial and suffering, as Peter tells us here. One of the reasons that I wanted to look at 1 Peter for this short series is because there are a lot of similarities between the situation in the churches that Peter's writing to and and what we might call our post-Christian context in New England today. When Peter addresses his letter to those who are elect exiles, he calls them exiles there, he is writing to Christians who were probably exiled out of Rome, but he's describing their situation in the language and imagery of ancient Israel's exile. When they were dispersed from their homeland and living as foreigners and resident aliens in Babylon. In fact, 
Paul refers to Rome in kind of a uh, cheeky slash hidden way in chapter 5 as Babylon. And so to call them exiles here or sojourners and exiles in in 2.11, he's not just talking about their geographical location, nor is he talking about the kind of sojourn where we're, we're just passing through this world on our way to heaven. He's talking about the relationship between the Christian and the unbelieving society. They are exiles, resident aliens, strangers in a culture where Christianity is not the dominant influence. Just like Israel, in their exile, these churches, their faith and lifestyle was in conflict with the dominant culture. They were chosen by God to be his people and to be a light to the people around them. But we're we're told that they were often rejected by that world. As chapter 4 puts it, they were often maligned and ridiculed when they didn't jump into the same flood of debauchery as the Gentiles, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, and the like. They were a people who had to live out their faith in the margins of society. And so Peter talks a lot about the suffering and opposition that goes along with that context. And that context is very similar to our context in New England today, and increasingly so. Despite the history of our region, Christianity has by and large been pushed from the center to the margins. To uphold something so basic as the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality is to invite mockery, scorn, and even discrimination. Our federal government is now trying to force Christian institutions and Christian business owners to break their religious conscience and pay for abortion-causing drugs for their employees. It's the first time, as I can tell, in the history of America that we've ever passed a law that would make it mandatory to sin. Or just take something you know, as simple as your child's sports schedule, Okay? Now, I do not think that by scheduling sporting events on Sunday mornings that our towns and schools are part of some insidious plot to wipe out Christianity and so on. But I do think it's another indication that Christianity is no longer the dominant cultural influence and that participating in some of the most basic parts of society is going to become increasingly difficult for faithful Christians. Like the churches in 1 Peter, we are foreigners in the land of our own birth, many of us. We are exiles, resident aliens in a culture where Christianity has moved from the center to the margins. Now, that doesn't mean we disengage and just go find a safe corner from which to condemn the rest of the world. Nor does it mean we disconnect our faith from the rest of life, which is what the world wants us to do. You know, live one way here when we gather and a different way elsewhere. And that's easy to do if church is just something we go to. Real church is neither isolated from the world nor compromised by the world. Think about that. Real church, God's church, is neither isolated from the world nor compromised by the world. It's engaged in every sphere of life to bring the life-changing message of the gospel to bear on all people in all places. So loving our neighbors, our colleagues, our classmates 
even if they don't love us in return. As Peter puts it in chapter 3, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect so that when you are slandered, and notice he says when, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They might not have a leg to stand on in their accusations. And even when we do find ourselves opposed or facing severe trials because of our faith, Peter tells us it's these very trials that God often uses to shape and refine us into the people that he wants us to be. If we look again at verses 6 and 7, he uses the illustration of putting gold through the fire in order to burn off any impurities that might be in the metal. So God tests and purifies our faith through fiery trials, which, if we keep reading, ultimately result in the commendation of our Father when Jesus returns. In other words, the fire does its job. It's painful, but it works. It refines our faith. It makes us into the people we're supposed to be. And so, like an artist who finishes his masterpiece and stands back to admire it, so when we stand before the Father, having been fully changed to bear the image of Christ perfectly when he returns, the Father will give praise, glory, and honor to his refined children. He's going to commend what his work has accomplished in us, even as we reflect that glory, praise, and honor right back to him. And so for that reason, though, you know, though the trials and the suffering can be very real, very painful, rather than complaining, Peter tells us to rejoice in them. We know that suffering for Christ is not wasted because God is still on the throne. Even it, it, it may look like God is losing on the outside, but quite to the contrary, it's the means by which he's changing us and the means by which he's showing the world what it looks like to lay our lives down just like Christ did for everyone on the cross. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. You can't find words for it. And full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Real faith is a salvation-forming faith. It doesn't leave us the way it finds us. It changes our lives, past, present, and future. Fourth, and finally, real faith is a biblically-shaped faith. It's a biblically-shaped faith. As Peter rejoices in God's saving work in verses 3 through 9, he then shows us that this plan of salvation is anchored in God's word, having been revealed long ago to the prophets in the scriptures, and all of which pointed forward to Christ. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 12, this scriptural anchoring of God's saving work. 
He writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed, excuse me, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, you people who are experiencing this suffering right now as a marginalized people. These prophets were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So real faith is biblically shaped faith. It's a faith that accords to God's word in scripture. God's vision for the church did not come out of thin air, uh, nor is his vision for the church subject to revision or change by his people. It is the result of an eternal plan of salvation as revealed in the scriptures and as proclaimed by the spirit-empowered preaching of his word. That's what we see in these verses. And so, you know, one, of the, one of the first things you have to do, if we want to develop a man-centered faith, or if we want to, you know, operate by a performance-based relationship with God or, or have a kind of faith that's actually powerless to change us, one of the first things you have to do is to ignore or marginalize God's word. And there's all sorts of ways you can do it. You can do it by never spending time in God's word, either personally or as a congregation. You might read books or have sermons and classes that might be full of helpful principles for life, but void of God's word. You can do it by opening the word, but mishandling it, not paying attention to context, making it say something it doesn't actually say, whether unintentionally or, sadly, intentionally. Paul told us the time would come when People would gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears wanted to hear. And you can ignore or marginalize God's word by pouring over it, analyzing every detail, and teaching it faithfully, but never obeying it. That's another way we can marginalize God's word. Real faith means taking God at his word and by his grace and by his spirit, obeying that word, obeying that word. It's recognizing, again, that God is God. It's a God-centered view of church and faith. It's not up to us to rewrite the script. The church must be a people of the word. As David Wells reminds us, God is not there at our convenience or simply for our healing or simply as the divine teller handing out stuff from his big bank. No, we are here for his service. We are here to know him as he is, not as we want him to be. The local church is the place where we should be learning about this and God's word is the means by which we can do so. Real faith is a biblically shaped faith. We must be a people of the word. And for that and other reasons, just as a shameless plug here, that's one of the reasons that Mark Bauer and I are 
going to be teaching a class on reading God's word together. How do we learn how to to read this well and to do it with each other for the sake of putting it into practice, being changed by the gospel of Jesus? So we're going to be starting that class in a couple of weeks. Real church is not what we go to. It is who we are. A people formed by God and marked by faith, which is God-centered, gospel-saturated, salvation-forming, and biblically-shaped. May we never lose sight of that foundation as God's people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for that kind of faith. Lord, we confess that it is so terribly easy to get stuck focusing on ourselves, to get stuck worrying about all sorts of things, our our children, our careers, our school, our our social life. We, We just, we fix on these things. And it has a way of distracting us. Lord, thank you that faith is not something that only touches one part of our life. It's something that connects us with the God who rules over all of life. And God, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to give us that kind of faith. To give us that faith as a church as we move ahead to to make your name known both when we gather and when we scatter. Lord, we want to be a faithful people to you. And so would you help us to become more and more enthralled with you and less amazed by ourselves? Would you help us, Lord, to be obsessed with your gospel, to never, ever stop depending on or telling the praises of your grace? Would you help us to be changed by our faith? Would you use the difficulties that we face in life to reshape us into the people you want us to be, that your your beauty would be displayed, that when people look at your church, they'd see a reflection of the beauty and glory and mercy and love of God. And Lord, would you give us a faith that clings ruthlessly to your word? Lord, your word is not idle, it is life. God, may we dwell on it and think about it and read it and memorize it and live it and obey it daily. Lord, we need your word to be your people. And Lord, we thank you that what makes all of this possible is not the power of faith or the power of positive thinking or anything in us. It's what you have done to make us your people. You get all the credit, God. You get all the glory. We give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.